Hello, my name's John Schaefer and welcome to the CityWell Wealth Manager podcast. On today's episode, I spoke with veteran European investor Rory Powell, who manages the MAN GLG Continental European Growth Fund. The strategy has been pretty resilient, despite European equities being largely unloved by investors. It's returned 42% over three years, compared with a sector average of 16%. As a veteran European investor, why do you think Europe has been so overlooked by investors in recent years? I think the main reason is the fact that the region has not boasted very dynamic economic growth for quite a few years now. And it's had its fair share of crises. For example, the Eurozone crisis of 2011, which followed quite hot on the heels of the financial crisis of 2008 and nine. So I think a lot of people look at Europe quite negatively and wrongly, in my opinion, because they don't see much in the way of economic dynamism. And my response to them is, if you want economic dynamism, you you should invest in countries like Vietnam, not Europe. The reason to invest in Europe, in my opinion, is to capture the strength of its companies. And it's not a coincidence that Europe is blessed with so many world-class companies. I think that's a function of the fact that their backyard is relatively docile and therefore in order to grow, European companies have to think way beyond the boundaries of Europe and become global and also they have to innovate. So what you're saying is is sort of the success of these European companies is contingent on them doing well internationally rather than just in Europe, I assume. Yes, I think if you look at Europe's leading companies, they have something in common, which is that they're winning all over the world and they're bringing their competitive advantages to bear in regions like the Asia-Pacific, China specifically, and they're very successful in the Americas as well. And, And so Europe does have more than its fair share, I would say, of world-class, world-class companies. Um, obviously, there's been a lot of talk of this rotation from, from growth stocks into value. Um, and I, I suppose the investment towards Europe is, is kind of lumped into that. And, and do you think success as a European investor is, is based on that more long-term rotation to value stocks? Uh, I think the short answer to that question is no. Is no. I I think if you're going to invest in Europe successfully long-term, then I think you should play to its strengths. And and that is to invest in its strongest companies. And and not to, if you're long-term, not to invest in companies that are not world-class. And if you look at the banking industry, for example, in, in Europe, it's struggling with diminishing asset quality on the one hand, but, but also downward pressure on their net interest margins, given the absolute low level of interest rates, but also the fact that the shape of the yield curve isn't really conducive to lucrative net interest margins. So I think it's a sector that faces many structural 
challenges. And you could say that of other industries which rely too heavily upon economic growth. It may well be the case that as vaccines are rolled out, we do get a rebound in European and indeed global economic activity in 2021, continuing in 2022. But that's not something we put a huge amount of store upon. And we're not convinced it's going to be long-lasting either. So we'd rather invest in companies where their success relies instead upon their own competitive strengths and the fact that they're serving a structurally growing market. And that leads us away from value stocks. And you mentioned the um, banking stocks, and that's obviously something that a lot of European investors are, are, are looking at with, with this idea of a, a value rotation. But it seems that, that you're underweight there. Is that, is that the case? Yes, because our approach really is very stock-specific, and we're looking for companies with particular attributes which we think will enable them to be successful and create excellent shareholder value, and value for all their stakeholders, for that matter, in the long term. And the banking sector doesn't really offer us those sorts of opportunities. So for stock-specific reasons or bottom-up reasons, we tend to find our best ideas Elsewhere, I'm not saying that we're necessarily particularly negative about banks, but, but unfortunately, not many banks. In fact, at the moment, the zero banks meet our criteria. And in which sectors are you seeing the greatest opportunities? And perhaps you could give me um, a couple of stock examples. Our approach is very stock-specific and bottom-up. So we don't kind of take a top-down view and decide to allocate X percent of the fund to healthcare or Y percent of the fund, the consumer stocks, the, the sector weightings are entirely the result of the bottom-up stock selection. But, but to answer your question, that bottom-up stock selection often results in us identifying strong ideas in areas like healthcare, for example, technology, and also consumer goods. And to give you an, an example Novo Nordisk is one of the biggest positions in the portfolio. It's one of our top 10 holdings. And the reason it meets our criteria is is because it is clearly the global leader in the diabetes care industry. And unfortunately, diabetes is becoming more and more of a prevalent problem, largely for, for, for lifestyle reasons. Obesity, for example, is an important contributor to the the incidence of type 2 diabetes. So you you could describe diabetes as as an epidemic. And with their insulin products, but also their GLP-1 products, they have a market share of approximately 30% in what is a structurally growing market. Now, it may be the case that there's downward pressure on pricing of insulin in the US, but it doesn't stop Nova Nordis from making gross margins of above 80%. Healthcare is one area where we find an attractive company. And then another would be technology, because if you think about the advance of technology, whether it's machine learning or artificial intelligence or the arrival of the arrival of 5G networks, the advance of supercomputing, all all of this is resulting in greater demand for higher performing 
semiconductors. And lithography sits at the sweet spot of the manufacture of semiconductors because ASML, which is one of our core positions, is the world leader in lithography. It's got a market share of over 80%. Indeed, its market share in EUV machines for lithography is 100%. And its customers who are manufacturing semiconductors want tools from ASML which enable them to achieve more and more line shrink and be able to achieve dimensions at seven nanometers or less. And that requires machines that can conduct, the, if, if you like, the printing of the integrated circuit onto the silicon surface or the photosensitive layer of the silicon surface at ever-diminishing dimensions. And, and so that's a company that's really at the sweet spot of that. Again, like Nova Nordisk, it's, it's, it's growing its revenues in a structurally growing market. It's extremely profitable and it has a very strong balance sheet. So one stock that did um, ping up to me was Ryanair there. And, and uh, why are you investing in Ryanair? Obviously, um, th- that's very contin- contingent on the, the vaccine being rolled out um, and, and sort of things going back to normal. So, so why is that a stock in your top 10? No, that's a good, good question. The, the reason, first of all, is, is that Ryanair is clearly a, another leader, in this case, in, in the field of, European short-haul air travel and, and, and where it's got very convincing competitive advantages, most obviously in the form of its lower costs per passenger, which enables it to normally be profitable at very low fares. So low fares, in the case of Ryanair, don't necessarily fly in the face of profitability because they have such a low cost base. Now, now of course, I don't think we should be too optimistic short term about the speed with which people are going to go back to flying European short haul. And even if they want to, the the regulations or the restrictions make it very difficult for them to do so. But I think the reason we own Ryanair is because even if this crisis lasts for longer than than we envisage, and that a lot of the fleet is effectively grounded, they've got a strong enough balance sheet to accommodate quite a prolonged period of loss. How long, though? Surely they've been, Surely it's been hemorrhaging cash um, over the past years. How long can that balance sheet stand up? Yeah, so, so Ryanair, when, when its fleet was literally grounded in the Easter period of last year, 2019, it was, it was getting through about 60 million euros of cash a week. And, and, and so... On that basis, it's going to burn through probably over 3 billion euros of cash over a 12-month period. Thankfully, Ryanair has enough cash on its balance sheet so that theoretically, because it's, it's unlikely to be the case in the next 12 months, we hope not, if the fleet is, is grounded for that long, the cash should last them at least 12 months but they've got the gross cash that they've got on the balance sheet. On top of that, they own outright over 330 of the 470 Boeing 737-800s, which are valued on the balance sheet. The planes that they own in an unencumbered way with no leases have a, have a 7 billion euro balance sheet value, book value. And so worst case, and I hope it doesn't come to this, 
either they could sell some planes into cargo because there's a lot of demand for single life planes in Asia for cargo, for example, or, or they can sell and lease back some of those planes and liberate cash from their fleet in the way that a number of their competitors have been doing so. We don't think that's going to be necessary. But the point I'm making that even if this crisis goes on for longer, Ryanair is better positioned than any other airline, in our opinion, to survive that and therefore to emerge with a much higher market share than its competitors. We think that a lot of capacity will disappear in European short haul and those remaining of its competitors will be highly compromised. Clearly, low-cost airlines like Ryanair, it's, it's a very low-margin business. And, you know, as you mentioned before, there's probably going to be more restrictions and, and regulations when um, we can fly again on, on, on sort of en masse, um, you know, when the vaccine's rolled out. Will a business like Ryanair be able to survive um, if it can, it can make less money, basically? Yeah, I think um, the... I, I wouldn't agree with your your premise that this is a this is a low low margin business. So so in in the past, Ryanair's earned comfortably more than ten euros per passenger EBIT and returns of invested on its invested capital of in in the high teens, if not above twenty percent, and operating margins of close to twenty percent. So so even though it has low fares because of it's very low cost structure. And because it's playing to typically full with low factors normally of around 96%, it, it is extremely profitable. Now, at the moment, it's not profitable. And for the year ending March 2021, it will be loss-making. It, it, it's, and it, it, I mean, that may be the case also in the year ending March 2022. That depends a lot in terms of what happens this summer in in 2021, but we do believe that the combination of costs coming down, as you think about it, airport costs are coming down, the fuel price has come down, the cost of pilots and crew has come down, and so pretty well every cost line at Ryanair is moving in a downward direction. Now, the key question is what happens to fares? In the next 12 to 24 months, I think it would be a mistake to be optimistic about that, particularly given that Ryanair will want to generate traffic with low fares this summer and going into 2022. But given the fact that a lot of capacity is going to come out of the industry on a permanent basis, the supply-demand imbalance will be very much in Ryanair's favour, in our opinion. And that should argue for fares to go up in the next three to five years. So on a five-year view, we think and that's normally, we'd normally take a, at least a five-year view on each of our investments. We think Ryanair can be very profitable at the passenger level and, the, and at the group level. I wanted to, to move on to the stocks that have driven performance in your portfolio over perhaps both, both the past year and, and more, more broadly over a three-year period. You've, you've, you've done quite a bit better than your sector peers, um, sort of European fund managers. And, and maybe you could, you could say what's driven that performance. Yeah, in, in, in 2020, last year, the, the fund produced a, a good return and a return much better than its be- benchmark. It's only one, one year. We're, we're pleased that it comes on top of a, a number of years where the performance has been good. But of course, 
the investors in the fund, they're much more concerned about the future than, than the past. And, and so we should not take our track record for granted by any means. And, and, but, you know, thankfully, last year in 2020, we had a number of positions because we have quite a concentrated portfolio of 30 holdings. A number of them performed extremely well. And, and we, we talk about our portfolio in terms of established leaders and emerging winners. And emerging winners are companies that are disrupting existing markets, and they tend to be younger than our established leaders. Uh, and I would highlight the contribution to performance last year from Delivery Hero, which is a very strong company in the field of marketplace, online marketplaces for takeaway restaurants. It's very strong in Asia, very strong in the Middle East, very strong in Latin America. And, and that's actually, a, that's actually a German company, isn't it? Delivery Hero. It is a German company, although interestingly, now it has no activities apart from its operations and management in Germany because it sold its German online takeaway marketplace business to take away a, a European competitor because Delivery Hero was number two in Germany. And, and really, this business model only really works properly, in our opinion, if you're the number one, because then you get the economies of scale and you also get the advantage. If, if you're the site where there are most restaurants, then there will be probably most traffic on your site. And if there's more traffic on your site, more restaurants want to be on your site and it becomes a virtual circle. And Delivery Hero globally has more than 600,000 restaurants on its site. And it's growing extremely quickly, not just because of the pandemic. It's very strong growth predated the pandemic. The pandemic has probably given them a bit of a boost, but I don't think we should exaggerated because some of the countries were in sort of curfew type situations in the Middle East in the summer of, of 2020. Adyen was an, another very strong performer, a, a global leader in the field of payments. And it's enjoying the benefits of having a platform which merchants find in, incredibly convenient because it, they, it, the platform works as well, whether it's online or offline. And so one problem merchants have is having to adapt different payment systems to a customer that online or offline. They have to worry about that with Adyen. And ASML, which I mentioned earlier, of our established leaders was one of our most important contributors. I think the share price was up by more than 50%. Very pleasing performance, not as good as Adyen and Delivery Hero. And other names in the luxury goods field, interestingly, LVMH, Montclair, and Ferrari were very good contributors, as was L'Oreal. I noticed Ferrari, um, its stock prices has really um, shot up. And why is that? Obviously, you know, we uh, associate Ferrari with kind of a luxury car manufacturer, but, you know, in, 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 when auto stories are kind of dominated by Tesla at the moment, why is Ferrari doing so well? It's selling every year approximately 10,000 sports cars and GTs. So a relatively small number. You think that there are 18, 18 million high net worth individuals in the world. And what's impressed us about Ferrari, and I think one reason for its very strong performance in 2020, is the number of new models it's launching which are contributing to an improvement in its average selling price. 
but also the profitability of its car and car components business. And I think a good a good example um, was the SF90 Stradale, which is the first plug-in hybrid, which has 1,000 horsepower and has really captured the Im- imagination of its customers. And Ferrari is really focusing upon having a strong pipeline of new products over the next few years, which will include a shift towards more hybrid models. And by 2022, 2023, they expect 60% of their range to be hybrids. And these hybrids come with stronger, even stronger performance and also slightly higher average selling prices. So it's a very profitable business, which, which is serving a very loyal set of customers. If you look at its track record as a, as a business, it's, it's a very resilient business. And its waiting list gives us, as shareholders, a very, very good visibility. So who's buying Ferrari? Is it, is it people in Asia or is it, or is it kind of a global thing? And why is there such a, such a big waiting list for a Ferrari? Yeah, their customers are in Europe and in North, North America, also Asia, although China still only represents about 10% of their, of their volumes. And we think long-term Ferrari's got good headroom in China, particularly as it develops its GT range. And so its customers come from all over the world, but, but with a clear bias in favor of of Europe, but, but as I say, it's, it's not a it's not a lot of cars that they're selling. It's only ten thousand cars a year, and so you compare that with the, the the brand. The Ferrari brand is one of the most iconic and most powerful brands globally. And if you look at its revenues, you would argue that maybe the brand is bigger than the business. There's a a lot of scope for the business to grow into the brand. I wanted to look at um, 2020 and perhaps some of the positions that you sold out of um, as a result of the pandemic. So we didn't really make any significant changes. We we sold one company in March, which was a relatively peripheral position. It was less than 1.5% of the fund. And it operates in, in the business of cash management and cash in transit. And sadly, the pandemic is probably going to bring forward the demise of cash in favor of cashless transactions. And, and we felt structurally that would be quite challenging for them, although it's a very strong company, competitively very strong. And so what was the name of that company? Numis, yeah. That helped fund our ability to add to names like L'Oreal, which were punished at the time, and took, we were able to take advantage of, of the share price weakness at the time. So really, we didn't make any significant changes. And, and, and sort of relevant to your question, if I could just add to the fact that even though we estimate that just over half of the value of the portfolio's investing companies where their business shouldn't really be adversely affected by the repercussions of, of the pandemic. But the fact is that over 45% of the portfolio is in the line of fire. But that doesn't mean we sell the position, particularly if it's got a very strong competitive position, which arguably is more likely to increase 
if their competitors suffer disproportionately because they don't enjoy the same competitive or financial strengths as them. Uh, and also, if you take luxury goods as an industry, I mean, that's been very badly affected. But we don't think it's a permanent wound, wound for the industry. And, and the, the desire to buy sort of beautiful goods or goods which have very high long-lasting quality will never go away. And if people buy them online instead of offline, so, so be it. And, and so we, 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 we won't sell a position just because it's about to go through a difficult period if the long-term investment thesis, in our opinion, is still very strong. Well, Rory, thank you so much for speaking to me today. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you very much.